I found out on March 7th, so I just had my one year anniversary, that I'd won the prosperity seat to, to go to space. And it's that, you know, Willy Wonka and the golden ticket moment where you can't believe it. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> to me, it was that, wow, it finally came true. You know, 50 years of working towards this this moment and here it is right here now in front of me i couldn't believe it welcome to episode two of the big interviews astronauts mini series in which we sit down with pioneers who have left their mark on space exploration history this series of the big interview is produced ahead of the aim higher gala which will take place on the 3rd of may at the science museum in london to celebrate the 50th anniversary of apollo 16 and the future of international space travel this week, we meet Dr. Cyan Proctor. Cyan made her first space flight last September on the SpaceX mission Inspiration 4. Cyan's three-day flight was also a first in a couple of broader respects. It was the first ever all-civilian space operation, and at the controls of the spacecraft Resilience, Cyan became the first black woman to serve as a space pilot. Prior to her first launch, Cyan had a background as a geology professor and science communicator, featuring in several television shows. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Dr. Cyan Proctor on The Big Interview. Well, I think, first of all, let's start with this uh, Apollo 16 uh, gala that you're attending in London. And even as I ask the question, why does that seem like an exciting thing to go to? It sounds like a really dumb question. But why, why to you does that seem like an exciting thing to go to? Well, I, I think it's exciting to go to because, you know, it's history. It's all of our history, even though it was the U.S. that you know, the Apollo mission is associated with, it really is about humanity's journey to the moon, Mars and beyond. And for me, I have a, a special just relationship with the Apollo program in general, because I was born on Guam as a result of my dad working at the NASA tracking station there during the Apollo missions. That does bring us, I guess, nicely to the beginning of the Your Life Story segment of this interview. And as you say, that's why you were born on Guam. Space was in the family. But as you grew up, were you always thinking, one day that's going to be me, one day I want to be an astronaut? I mean, I know it's not an uncommon childhood ambition, but if it's in the family, does it seem any more plausible? I definitely wanted to be a fighter pilot first, astronaut second. <laughs> but no, it was something that I thought about when I was a kid. And, but I always thought of it through that military aviator lens. And so when I knew I wasn't going to be a military aviator, I thought that that was out of my reach. And it wasn't until my late 30s that I realized that this was actually possible. And I feel so thankful that I actually ended up going to space. You didn't go into geology with a view to becoming an astronaut via geology one day. It, it would seem an unlikely path. No, not at all. I have also been an explorer my entire life. I think that that goes hand in hand with wanting to be a, an astronaut. And, and so I think that for me, geology just meant I got to explore our wonderful planet and travel. And so I really became a travel enthusiast through the geology lens. 
But was there a point at which you decided, no, actually, I do really want to do this and started thinking about what kind of skills and what sort of experiences you needed to assemble to make yourself a plausible candidate? Well, this is the great part about being an explorer. I was getting my pilot's license and scuba certified and traveling and teaching around the world. And when I was 38, somebody sent me an email saying, NASA's looking for astronauts, you should apply, because they saw that I was living the life of an explorer. And so when I looked at the application, because I didn't even know at that time how they even selected astronauts, and I looked at the application, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm like, you know, well qualified for this. And so that's when I got over my imposter syndrome and applied. The imposter syndrome, I think, must weed out hundreds of thousands of potential <laughs> applicants right there, because I've been lucky enough to have been able to ask a couple of other astronauts a variation on this question because it does fascinate me the fact that there's literally an application form that you can sit down with with pen in hand or online and basically write why I want to be an astronaut my question is how do you get yourself into a place where you can take yourself seriously doing that how big is the voice in your head at that point going oh come on Oh, the voice inside my head was screaming. You know, they'll never pick you. You're just a community college professor. What are you doing here? But my dad just kind of instilled this idea in me that don't talk yourself out of opportunity. Let somebody else decide whether or not you're qualified. So when that voice is screaming at me, I always bring up my dad's voice saying, okay, what's the worst that can happen here? Why aren't you applying? Even if they say no, at least you put yourself out there. And, and so that's kind of been a, a philosophy to live by. What is the selection process actually like? Because you got almost all the way through it, I think, in 2009. How many stages are there? What kind of feedback do you get? Basically, what happens? Well, you know, there's four stages, really. You, you apply, and thousands of people apply. And then there's the 450 highly qualified. And that's when they start kind of looking into who you actually are. And then from there, they choose 110 or around there, around 100, 120 um, to, to first-round interviews. And, um, and then from there, they choose, you know, 40 to 50, whatever the number is going to be for second round interviews where you become a finalist. And then from there, it's a yes, no phone call, whether you are an astronaut or, you know, please try again. And so I got down to the yes, no, and it was please try again. What was your sense, though, of what they are looking for throughout that process? What sort of, you know, not, not just skills, but I suspect personality qualities must come into it massively? Well, you know, I think they're looking for people who are well-rounded, that they're just not hyper-focused on one thing, which is to become an astronaut, that they have other outside interests. Also, how well you get along with other people, the kind of things that you, you enjoy doing, researching, those kinds of things. Ultimately, I wasn't selected, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm not the best to answer that question. On the commercial side, though, you can go as an artist and a poet. I'll move on to that shortly, but when you get to the end of the NASA program or the NASA selection program and you don't quite make it, do they let you know why? Is there any feedback from them at all? No, uh, there was no 
feedback. It was just, we hope you will try again. And most astronauts don't make it on the first try, you know, but to come back again, I was 39 at the time and NASA's only taken one female over 40 in its entire history. And that was Barbara Morgan, who you could technically say was a special case because she was Krista McAuliffe's backup um, for the first teacher in space. So they won't say that they age discriminate, but all the data skews towards younger women. How big a jolt was that personally? Because that must be harder than not getting anywhere. Like I imagine if I applied to NASA to become an astronaut, I would very swiftly get a nice letter I could hang on my wall saying, you know, dear Andrew, thank you for your interest in becoming an astronaut, but you've got to be kidding. And I could probably learn to live with that pretty quickly. But was it hard coming to terms with getting that close, but not quite getting there? Absolutely, because your childhood dream just came, you know, slipped through your fingers. You were so close to getting it. And I I really thought, you know, and then the imposter syndrome voice comes in and says, see, I told you you weren't good enough. You need to get yourself better. You need to do all these things and make all these changes. And you, you, you kind of go into a little bit of a spiral after that. But how you come out of that is just as important. And so instead of seeing this as a failure on my part, I saw it. I, I switched the narrative and decided that this is a celebration that I was a finalist for the astronaut selection process. I mean, I got down to the less than 1% of the people who applied. And so I, I just turned it around and said, this is worth celebrating. And there are other ways for me to contribute to the advancement of human spaceflight, even if it's not through NASA. So from that point, how conscious and deliberate was your process of thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to figure out what I need to do, and I'm going to tick these things off? Well, you know, from there, it becomes more about hope for the future, where you're like, okay, if I'm not going to end up being a NASA astronaut, I hope one day I'll be able to go commercially. And so I had that. But then I also told myself, if I, if I don't make it to space, I can still advance human spaceflight as an analog astronaut living in moon and Mars simulations. And so I pivoted to that area. I did want to ask about that. I think you spent four months in a simulated Mars habitat in Hawaii. Is there a way to explain what that's like? I mean, I realise a lot of people uh, listening to this after their experience of the last couple of years will now be thinking four months could do that standing <laughs> up. But but what what was it like in the in the Mars habitat? It was a great experience because to me it was like space camp for adults, <laughs> uh, except for it lasted for four months. And so you go and you live in this dome on the big island of Hawaii, and it's at 8,000 feet on the slopes of Mauna Loa. And every time, and you're with five other individuals, there were six of us living in this habitat, and we were acting like we were living on Mars. And that means that whenever we left the habitat, we had to wear a spacesuit. And so you simulated that whole concept so that you're, you're trying to embed yourself into this idea. And as a geologist, you know, you, you trample out of the habitat onto this lava field. So not, there's no trees or anything like that. So it feels very Mars-like. And you just immerse yourself into this wonderful world. And the best part was we were investigating food strategies for long duration space flight. So it was all about cooking for four months. And I'm a foodie. <laughs> as a study in 
learning about yourself. Did you find anything else out about yourself during that period, the way that you get on with a small number of people you might not previously have known all that well in obviously very cloistered circumstances, which is something which I guess is key uh, to being an astronaut? Yeah, you know, I learned uh, a lot about myself, and that's one of the reasons why I challenged myself to do this. You learn how to regulate your emotions to some extent. I'm even keeled anyways, so there wasn't a lot of like swings that I had in that regard, but also how you communicate with other people. The things that you learn that make you you know, on edge. And then how do you deal with that? Like you might not like the way somebody chews or the way that they walk or the way that their, their voice squeaks or something like that. And then after four months, that could potentially drive you crazy. Those are things that you regulate and not let bother you. And then there's also just this idea of conflict and conflict mitigation. You know, you can't avoid conflict, but what do you do? You're building a family and all families fight at some time, but learning how to speak to each other and and just rules of engagement when you're dealing with complex humans in a tight space like that. We'll wind forward from that point to late last year when you finally make it into space for the first time on on Inspiration4. And I, I will talk about the flight shortly, but I did want to ask, after these years of dreaming and struggling and working towards the moment, can you recall, was there a particular moment at which it, dawned on you, somebody told you something or you got the email or the phone call and you found yourself thinking, oh, this is actually going to happen. I'm going. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I found out on March 7th. So I just had my one year anniversary that I'd won the prosperity seat to, to go to space. And it's that, you know, Willy Wonka and the golden ticket moment where you can't believe it. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> I also say, it's Harry, you're a wizard. Wait, I can't be a wizard. Wait, did you get that right? <laughs> and so uh, to me, it was that, wow, it finally came true. You know, 50 years of working towards this this moment and here it is right here now in front of me i I couldn't believe it so from march 2021 till blast off you've got about six months to get your head around the fact that you're going to do this how do you prepare for that once now it's all become real this isn't hypothetical anymore what do you need to learn what do you need to think about who do you talk to how do you get ready for the day? Well, you know, the best part is right after Jared told me that I'd won the seat, he also informed me that he thought I should be the mission pilot. And, uh, you know, you're like, okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm like, does he know I only flew a, one, a Cessna 172? And so now it's about, well, what does that mean? How do I become the pilot of the Dragon spacecraft? And so it was a lot about going to SpaceX headquarters where they train NASA astronauts, getting into the simulator, learning all of the systems, um, how they interact, because the modern day uh, pilot is a systems engineer because the spacecraft is autonomous. It can fly itself, but your job is to monitor the systems and to make sure that the Dragon is doing what it's supposed to do every phase of flight. I am backing up my commander because he's ultimately responsible for the spacecraft and all of the life on board. And so, um, my job was to back him up and to know the systems. 
And so you go through all of these simulators and, you know, you get into the books of what it is that make up the dragon capsule and the Falcon 9. But you also have to do things like crew cohesion and bonding with your crew members. So we hiked Mount Rainier. We got to fly fighter jets. We went through centrifuge training. We went through hyperbaric training together. We did a zero-G flight together. So all of these kinds of experiences get you prepared for that day you blast off. And on that day, and I guess in the the days you subsequently spent in orbit, for all the preparation you'd done, and I guess for all the reading you'd done about it, all the other astronauts you might have spoken to, did anything surprise you? I was surprised at how smooth it was, you know, because we had heard that it can be, you know, a lot of vibration and stuff, but it didn't stop me from being able to focus on my screen and what I was supposed to do during, you know, the different phases of flight. So I was surprised by that. The other thing that I think surprised me the most was being on orbit when we opened up the forward hatch to reveal our cupola. A cupola is just a giant window that we flew into space and where we could look back on Earth and to experience Earth light. And as a geologist, I knew that the Earth had a high reflectivity, but I was just blown away by just how bright it was. And, you know, we think about moonlight and how moonlight captivates us. You know, there are songs and there is myth and lore around moonlight. And Earthlight is a thousand times brighter and more brilliant and more beautiful than moonlight. And I and I got to experience that and really kind of put that into context for myself as a geoscientist and as an artist. Well, that's something I wanted to ask about because... First, I want to ask about how you would describe your artworks to our listeners, which I realise is going to be a tricky one because this is obviously a a non-visual medium and they are visual works. But how would you describe them? Well, I'm an Afrofuturist artist, and so you can think of it as something like the book, The Little Prince, but the female astronaut version of that. <laughs> so I have characters like Afrobotica, which is kind of more of a robotic kind of Afrofuturistic version of human spaceflight. And then I have Afronaut, which again is more like the Little Prince character in that book. And so I just kind of think of what we will be like in the future. And then I, I, I create these artistic visions of the future for myself and then I write poetry to go with it. Because I I was wondering if you thought that for all that there is this mythology of space travel that has developed since you know human beings started doing it um, and it is something that has been celebrated in you know in literature in film and in music and and so on and so on. Have we made a mistake up to this point by not sending more actual artists into space uh, who could perhaps bring a non-scientific or non-military perspective to bear on the experience for the benefit of the rest of us? Well, you know, I think we just need to broaden it out um, to as many different people and cultures as possible, not just artists and poets. And that's why I strive for a Jedi space, a just, equitable, diverse and inclusive space, because the more people that can experience Earthlight, the better our planet's going to be. And so I look at, you know, William Shatner or Captain Kirk going up and how he came back and and was transformed. And he's an artist. He's a poet. He uh, is an actor. And now he's also an 
ambassador for our planet having had that experience. Or you think about Michael Strahan going up and being able to come back as an athlete and talk about that experience. And so I think we really just need to broaden out this idea of who can and should go to space. When I think about my crew member, Haley, going as you know the first childhood cancer survivor and somebody who has a prosthesis in her leg and the message she brings to the rest of the world, to kids who may be going through cancer right now, who now see her as a, you know, a beacon of hope that they could go to the space one day. Do you feel like it's still for all, you, know, you point out those gestures towards inclusivity that space travel has started to make. Do you still feel like it is unnecessarily or avoidably forbidding or discouraging, especially for women or people of colour? If last year's an indication, we flew the oldest person, the youngest person. We flew a person that survived cancer. We flew me as the first black female pilot of a spacecraft. I mean, last year was a banner year. And so I just want to see that get more expansive. And I think now's the time to do that. So commercial space uh, just is the direction to go because it's going to open up access to so many individuals. Now, of course, it's going to take time. But even if you look at last year, the space providers like Blue Origin, they give away a seat, you know, Um, and, and right now they're giving them away to a lot of people who are more influencers like Michael Strahan. But they may be giving it out to people who we don't know. And they flew Alan Shepard's daughter. And a lot of people probably didn't know her. And then we look at Virgin and the fact that they gave away a seat to the first black Caribbean person through a contest and her and her daughter will get a chance to fly. And so those are the kinds of things that give me hope is that if we set the bar high and we try to push the people who are actually making the decisions of who gets to go to strive for that Jedi space, maybe then we can start seeing it become more inclusive and equitable. Do you think the commercial space enterprises might be a bit more open to being adaptable to different kinds of people? You've spoken before about how spacecraft designs, like so very many other things are, are designed uh, with the assumption that the male body is, is the default setting and everything else just has to learn to live with that. Oh, I think commercial will definitely change that because they can't ignore the fact that more than, I think it's 51 or 52% of the population is female. (laughs) Because if they do, then they're losing a lot of business. And so that's something that we, we have going for us. But you look at the last NASA astronaut selection class and it was a lot of the same old, same old. You know, I think nine out of 10 had a military background. Four women were selected and they were all um, young white female. Do you think commercial space travel, though, or commercial space firms need to do a better job of communicating the potential common benefits of space travel? Certainly in the wake of of Jeff Bezos's launch, there was this uh, widespread narrative developed that this was just a a, a plaything for incredibly rich people who had more money than they knew what to do with. Oh, absolutely. But it's not the space providers like Blue Origin or SpaceX or even Virgin. It's really the press. 
and the press is looking for sensationalized headlines and ways to stir up the public versus looking at the benefits that solving for space solves for Earth. Um, all of the advancements that are being made are being made here on Earth. All of the technology that's being spun off from the advancement of human spaceflight benefits us here on Earth. And so it's really about um, how we choose to share the story. And I think when we talk about the weight of that burden, I don't think it's necessarily has to be put on just the owners of these companies that are pushing for the advancement of human spaceflight. I think it also is upon, you know, the the reporters and the storytellers to be able to dig into what is actually happening and portray it in a in a fair way. So if, for example, this reporter asks you what, what the benefits are of, especially of increased commercial space travel to those of us who are not likely to actually travel commercially into space, what further good would you say it does? Well, what I would say is any advancement in human spaceflight is about efficiencies. It's about efficiencies in water, energy, food, waste. And all of that technology spins off here. And so when we think about computers and autonomous systems, um, and you think about how we now have cars that can drive themselves, everybody loves their cell phone. Well, space technology right there is the one that brought that to you. How you have to make things um, smaller, cheaper, lighter, all of these things uh, are for the advancement of human spaceflight. Well, they make it, it advances us also. So do you now or do you still have ambitions of going again? Is that something you're working towards? I'm not actively working toward going again. You know, I have discovered my authentic voice as an artist and a poet. And so I love kind of going into this new form of exploration for myself. But I'm also a geoscientist. I love planet Earth and there's so much more to explore. And so I'm hoping to go down to the South Pole, to the North Pole, you know, bottom of the ocean and just inspire people to fall in love with our planet. And if they get the opportunity to experience Earth light, that's just a bonus. Just as a final thought, I want to go back to a couple of things you've referred to earlier. One was the the early imposter syndrome as you sit down filling in the form saying, Dear NASA, I would like to be an astronaut. And and the other is, and you referred to it yourself, your own absolutely undeniable place in the history of space exploration as the, the first black woman to pilot a spacecraft. And that is no small change. They have put people on postage stamps for a lot less than that. Um, has, has the latter of those cures with the former, is it possible to get your head around the fact that you are in a not insignificant way actually a pioneer, a historical figure in what is still a fairly new story of human travel beyond Earth? I got to remind myself that, you know, when I'm hanging around some cool people that, oh, I'm here because I went to space. I'm kind of cool myself, you know. Um, and it's it's one of those things where I'm so thankful that I was able to take on this endeavor. And now, you know, with opportunity comes responsibility and being able to go out and share my space to inspire message, uh, you know, um, a Jedi space, thinking about how to open the door for others, how to inspire other people to follow in my footsteps. I mean, that's really the true legacy is seeing those things come to fruition over my lifetime. Cyan Proctor, thank you very much for joining us on The Big Interview on Monocle 24.
That's it for this special edition of The Big Interview. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle, edited by Steph Chungu, and researched by Lillian Fawcett. Thanks also to Christina Corp, founder of Space for a Better World. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.